You want to get out your message outline that says the construction for the Lord on it? Good to see everybody on a summer day. We are in Exodus, starting at chapter 35. Today we're going to go through chapter 38. And I'm not going to read all four chapters. It's pretty long, but it is scintillating reading, I assure you. So... We're going to sort of do selected passages, primarily focused on chapter 35 uh, today, so you'll want to have that open, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as always, this is your word, and we need it. We need to be reminded of what makes you great, that Exodus points us to our Redeemer, and sometimes it says things that are comforting and refreshing and encouraging, and sometimes it says things that are hard and challenging and convicting. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would do both, that you would point us towards Jesus, that you would point us towards his grace. You show us what responding to the gospel of God's grace looks like. We ask that you would do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you have gotten to experience autumn in New England, and it is beautiful. Autumn in New England is uh, my wife's idea of heaven on earth, because uh, it's gorgeous. And uh, she's in our element with all those colorful, changing leaves of fall. It makes me cold just thinking about it. I prefer midsummer with its stress-melting warmth. Yesterday was wonderful. <laughs> she likes sweaters. I like sunglasses. And yet, in the end, we're both uh, pretty easily awed by the beauty of God's creation, whether that's the silence of the mountains or the soothing sounds of the seashore. We both greatly appreciate the wonders of God's creation. On the other hand, uh, we also prize the movement and wonder of a great city. I am amazed by great architecture and beautiful cities. I have great respect for people who design and build things, mostly because I can't do any of that stuff myself. Uh, when we were in China, we saw a series of five buildings where the top of the buildings... I'm sorry, I didn't. Good luck, bud. The, uh, the top of the, the five buildings formed a giant dragon, and it was stretched out over all five buildings. And it was really cool. I have no idea how they did that. How do they keep the slabs of stone from collapsing before the keystone is inserted? How does the Eiffel Tower appear to be gracefully curved when every single one of its steel girders is straight? You know, I could 
look up the book answers to those things online. But those questions fascinate me. Over and over, I'll look at some magnificent building, and I was like, how did they do that? You know, I read an article. Uh, recently, the author writes about taking a college class in interpersonal skills called uh, Building Bridges, Not Walls. And she writes, in our first experiential learning exercise, we were placed in teams of four and assigned the task of building a bridge. Each team was given an assortment of office supplies, pencils, sticky notes, paper clips, etc., with which to create the structure. And as far as our team went, there was not an engineer among us. But what we lacked in knowledge, we made up in enthusiasm. In high school, we were the kids whose inflated math egos didn't correlate with the scores we were getting in standardized testing. We didn't so much build a bridge as we decorated a bridge. It was heavy on form and light on function. Interesting was how the instructor diplomatically termed it just before it collapsed. It's hard to build things. If you looked at any amazing structure, and there's so many examples, it's just hard to make those things happen. If you've ever been to a large city like uh, New York, you can look up and uh, trace the skyline and the top of the skyscrapers with your eyes. And some people get really overwhelmed by that or being in downtown New York City and you can't see the tops of the buildings because they're so tall. And it's easy to think, you know, it's way easier to find Jesus in the landscapes of the country than in the skyscrapers of the city. And partly that's because in the country you see what God has created. And in the city you see what people have created. And if you didn't know that God had given those people the intelligence and the skill to make those buildings and bridges possible, then human pride just might make sense. However, when people do recognize from whom they've received their gifts and talents, they become like the main characters uh, in our story here, not uh, Moses, but the builders. We've met them before. Bezalel and Oholiab, the craftsmen that God has handpicked to build his tabernacle. And why did he pick them? It's not like they had a lot of building opportunities while they're wandering out in the desert. Perhaps they acquired these skills as uh, the time they were slaves in Egypt. And yet Moses tells us, Exodus 35, verses 30 through 35, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahisamic of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer 
and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twilled linens, or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. These are talented guys. And we see they're chosen by God because God has equipped these two men to build to his glory. The design and building skills of uh, Bees LL clearly reflects the time that he has spent in the presence of the Most Holy God and his desire to honor God. And I was thinking about this, and some of our children are gifted with builders' hands or engineers' minds. And we need to give them the opportunity and the encouragement to explore and use those gifts. About 10 years ago, the television host Jay Leno he actually wrote an article in Popular Mechanics about a young man who in 1931, at age 17, built a, some of you are going to understand this, some of you won't, built a three-wheeled coupe powered by a 77.2 cubic inch four-cylinder Indian motorcycle engine. Not sure how many of you understood that. But he did this because he told his father he wanted a car. And his father said, if you want a car, you're going to have to build it. So he did. So Jay Leno decided he wanted to see what the boys in the 1930s were up to. And so the editors of Popular Mechanics sent him a copy of a book from that time called The Boy Mechanic, which was aimed at boys age 8 and up. And Jay looked at the project and he came to the conclusion that most boys today couldn't build these projects because they sit in front of screens instead of work with their hands. Now, I don't completely agree with Jay. It's true, many kids spend too much time on video games, tablets, computers, and smartphones. But I bet some of our kids could still construct these projects. And if you have such a child, or you are such a child, I hope you don't fret you know, that you don't seem academic enough. Or that he or she would spend the, rather spend the day hammering than reading, or fabricating more than spelling, or measuring more than writing. Find ways to encourage the use of those gifts responsibly. They are getting rarer, and they are getting more and more needed. And pray that your child will find a way to build, to use these interests to honor God. Maybe they will be just like Bezal L, gifted to live in the shadow of God and build to his glory. Now, as for Joanne and I, we'll continue to appreciate the splendor of it all, the autumn leaves and the mountain views and the summer seashores, as well as the great cities and the awesome architecture. We recognize that when people design and create, whether in art or engineering, whether they realize it or not, that ability has been given to them by our Heavenly Father, who is, of course, the master designer, the master creator, the master builder. And of course, what God has given you is to be used for his glory. In some sense, it is to be given back to him. Which begs the question, how do you give your gifts back to God? That question gets to the heart of today's passage, which is four very full, very long, really fascinating chapters about the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings and its accessories. 
I mean, just listen to this. You can use this for your devotions this week from Exodus 36. He also made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The 11 cur curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the one set and 50 loops on the edge of the other connecting curtain. And he made 50 clasps of bronze to couple the tent together that it might be a single whole. Hey, God's word, spiritual truth, life-changing stuff. You should probably memorize it. So what do you do when you get to those long, boring passages in the Bible that are filled with amazing levels of detail? One of the rules is you look for the principles. Look for the principles. Now, to be fair, there's spiritual lessons in the details. Nothing in the tabernacle is without meaning or purpose. Every item has spiritual lessons if we're patient enough to learn them. But most of the time, when you're not getting down into the details, you're wise to step back and look at the big picture. And when that happens, you realize that these chapters on the construction of the tabernacle, you know, the reality is pretty much after the Ten Commandments and uh, maybe with that one golden calf thing, we pretty much want to skip the last half of Exodus because it's just got all the detail about building the tabernacle. And yet, when you really look at the big picture and all these details of the construction of the tabernacle coming after the dramatic rescue of God's people, coming after the dramatic giving of God's law, it all seems pretty anticlimactic. And yet actually, this is the climax, the high point of the whole book. Exodus shows us as the God shows us God as the God who delivers in chapters 1 through 18, who focus on God's power. And then we see God as the God who demands in chapters 19 through 24 a focus on God's will. But now in this third major section, the longest section, chapters 25 uh, through 40, and actually goes back a little early and continues on some in Leviticus, um, it shows us the God who dwells with a focus on God's presence. So why do chapters 25 through 40 come last? And I think uh, Moses, the, who's the writer, is saying that the parting of the Red Sea in chapter 14 is not the proverbial high water mark of the book of Exodus. Nor is the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai in chapter 20 the mountaintop experience we want it to be. In reality, the design, creation, and building of the tabernacle with its endlessly tedious record of stakes and curtains and skins and furniture and dimensions and materials is the climax of the book. And Exodus 25.8 tells us why. And we'll never understand the tabernacle unless this text catches our attention. One commentator said, unless we catch our pants on this text. I have to admit, I've never quite heard it like that before. But Exodus 25.8, God is speaking here and he says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. 
So God's tent will be pitched among Israel's tents. The Lord makes the same point in Exodus 29. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Getting out into the desert is not the goal of his people. Sending Moses to meet God at the top of Mount Sinai isn't the end goal. Even getting into the promised land is not the ultimate goal for his people. God himself is the goal of his people. Being with God, living with God, hearing from God, knowing that he's the one true God, not all those false gods (coughs) of Egypt, but him, God himself. And you're going to know that because we're going to build a tabernacle where God will dwell in the midst of his people. That's the high point of Exodus. Not that God's out there. Not that God's doing all this cool stuff to save us. Not that God is bringing us his law to tell us how it lives. But that God's going to live in a tent over there. And we can meet with him. That's the big news. So why give your gifts back to God? He's he's God. He's the one true God. And B, because he dwells in the midst of his people, whom he's rescued from slavery, whom he's given his law, whom he's freed to live and give out of gratitude and grace. So with all that said, what are you supposed to give? Well, first of all, this text calls us to be people who are part of God's covenant community, which is revealed by giving what you value. Giving what you value. Let me say a couple things. Exodus 35 uh, through 38 duplicates a lot of material that we've already heard about, we've already read, going through the book of Exodus. And the duplication by Moses is deliberate. It's important for two reasons. Uh, One reason it's important, because what's the big thing that people had messed up? The golden calf. So he sort of told them, here's everything you need to do, and they screw it up, build the golden calf. So it's like, well, I don't think you got it the first time, so let me cover it again. And so that's part of what's going on. They messed up by doing it their way. And so a gazillion times, I didn't add them up, but a whole lot of times, in Exodus 35 through 38, God throws in this little phrase, just as the Lord commanded, just as the Lord commanded, just as the Lord commanded. And what's being emphasized is the people understood they had messed up with the golden calf, and now they're finished with doing it their way, and now they're going to do it God's way. And so that's a really important part. But you know, the fact that they're building the tabernacle at all tells you that God, in his mercy, was not only gracious to spare them from their sins, but he's willing still to come and dwell in their midst. The very fact that they're building the tabernacle for which he had given the instructions to Moses is a sign of grace. 
they deserve to be blasted into oblivion. And having not been blasted into oblivion, not only does God spare them, but he goes right ahead and enters into fellowship and communion with them through the tabernacle. So all of the repetition and duplication serve to remind us of these truths. Yes, you turned your back on God, but no, God never turned his back on you. Secondly, at the very beginning of this, there's a quick few verses about the Sabbath, and they kind of seem out of context. It's at the very beginning, and I think there's a couple reasons for that. First, everybody's called before God to hear God's word, called before Moses. And Moses is going to deliver God's word. And Moses stresses that what he's going to tell them is not his words, but it's God's words. It's from God. And it's the Lord's commandment they're going to hear. And so as the section of the golden calf started right after the Sabbath command. The last thing we had before the incident of the golden calf was command on the Sabbath. Now this section begins with this uh, command about the Sabbath. God's given Moses the Sabbath command, covenant sign, the very end of Exodus 31. Then you see Israel rebelling against God. You go through this depressing three-chapter cycle of Exodus 32, 33, 34. God in his mercy pulls them out of it. Where does he start? It's almost like he's saying, now where was I? You know, right back to where he left off before the rebellion began. Some of you may be familiar with the stories of John Calvin in Geneva, uh, Switzerland. He was there for a few years, and the people got really sick and tired of him, and so they ran him off. And he was somewhere in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, preaching through Matthew. Don't you think I was nervous about that? When I was preaching through Matthew, he got halfway through Matthew, and they ran him off. You know, so sweating for a few chapters in there. But three years later, things had gone south in Geneva. Calvin's having a great time in Strasbourg. And so they sent a letter and said, would you please come back? Long story short, he comes back. He gets up first Sunday in the pulpit. Daddy's back. Uh, he gets up to preach. And he picks up right where he left off the very next verse in Matthew, where he had ended three years earlier. And that's what God is doing here. Where was I? Sabbath. Boom. Here's where he starts. Right where he left off before the whole golden calf thing. So you see, the point is, even tabernacle construction, even building the dwelling place for God's presence, takes a back seat to the need for the people's Sabbath rest and the honoring of the Lord's day. God is so committed to their need for rest and for communion with him on his day that he says, even my tabernacle, a place which visibly represents my presence on earth, even it takes second place to the importance of the Sabbath. Second, and even more important, the Sabbath command has come up repeatedly in the book of Exodus. Why? Because generally people who don't value the Sabbath don't value the other stuff God tells them. He makes it very clear, this is the priority. People who don't value corporate worship don't value private worship. People who don't value being part of God's covenant community 
don't value the commitment that membership in that community requires. People who don't value what God has given them don't value the need to return thanks by giving it back to God. In other words, what you do with Sunday morning is a barometer of your spiritual maturity. And that sounds hard. You know, come January, we'll start a whole other round of officer training. And we'll have a booklet, and we'll have, here's the guidelines, and you'll nominate people, and we'll train them up, and eventually we'll elect them, and we'll have some more officers. And somewhere in that process, almost every time, somebody will come up to me and say something to the effect of, I didn't get nominated. Why not? Why don't you come talk to me about this? And usually I'm like, well, how are you going with Sunday school? Do you go regularly? I, I don't see you there. Which community group are you in? Yes, I know it's not required, but... Missed you at the picnic and the retreat and the fellowship lunch. And by the time I get through about four or five of these things, it's pretty obvious why this person didn't get considered. At some point, you have to show up. You will not be considered to be a leader, an officer in the church, if we don't see you. You may think you're the most spiritually mature person in the building. And maybe that's true. But if I don't see you regularly, it's probably not going to happen. And so there's a sense that you have to value not just a worship service, but the whole thing. The church, the people, worship, being with God, the presence of God, having your family in the presence of God, having your family with the fellowship of the saints, all of that stuff, the whole thing, at some point, your actions say what you value. And that becomes really important. So this text calls us to be people who are part of God's covenant community, which is revealed by giving what you value. Second, this text calls us to be people, part of God's covenant community, revealed by giving what you do. Giving what you do. Here's the command to build, Exodus 35.10. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. And then the beginning of Exodus 36, we read, Bezal El and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezal El and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. So along with a command for Sabbath rest, there's a command for construction to build as the Lord commanded. The tabernacle construction itself is to proceed in accordance with the Lord's command. That's pretty obvious. It's going to be more than Bezal El and Oholiab you know, are going to have to be involved in doing all this stuff. You saw the pictures of Uganda uh, building a building. This is way bigger than that. And it's going to take way more uh, people than that. And this is a tent. It's not even permanent. We're not talking about the temple. We're talking about the tabernacle. 
So there's going to be a lot of uh, people doing all the stuff that needs to be done for the building of the tabernacle. And it's obvious that just more than these two men are going to be involved. But these men are chosen as God's chief engineers for the plan. But Moses' emphasis is that every skilled man is going to participate in this. He doesn't leave out the women. We'll get to you. The point is that God in his mercy is emphasizing that he's allowing rebellious sinners to participate in the declaration of his glory and building the place of his presence. See, it's a privilege for us to be able to participate in the building of God's kingdom. It's one of the greatest privileges God has given us in redemption. He doesn't just redeem us and say, okay, now sit over there while I get some good people to work for me. He redeems us and says, look, you're a holy mess. I know that, but I'm still going to put you to work anyway in the building up of my kingdom. And that's what we see going on in the building of the tabernacle. And the way we show gratitude for the work of God's grace in our life is by relishing the responsibilities the Lord's given to us. We should love it that he's put us to work. You know that attitude? You may have heard this in your home. Probably not. But that kind of, oh, do I have to? Well, in this case, that totally misses the point. Because a believer who's tasted God's grace loves it that God didn't say, you need to sit on the sideline while I get somebody really competent to do this. We feel our weakness, we know our unworthiness, and yet God says, right, now I'm going to put you to work. Glorifying my name, building up my kingdom. And the believers receive God's grace and realize what he's really like on the inside, you know, is like this is unbelievable. They're letting me work too. Me. Hard to imagine. I get to contribute something. I get to be involved in this even after what I've done. Right? So the duty here is actually a word of delight to the believer. He loves it. God's tabernacle is God's work, but in his mercy he chooses to involve us in the building of his tabernacle. Now, the New Testament application of that is not so much building buildings, it's building the body of Christ, which is the real church, and the demand for involvement in the building of the church. And it's not about bricks and mortar, it's about building people. And it's a mercy that God would involve us in that. So this text calls us to be people who are part of God's covenant community revealed by giving what you value and giving what you do. And third, this text calls us to be people, again, part of God's covenant community, revealed by giving what you have. Giving what you have. Look at Exodus 35, starting at verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. And get the Sabbath command. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing the Lord has commanded. Verse 5. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze, and he goes on and on. 
So we see this command from Moses. It's the Lord's command. Moses delivers it to the people to make a contribution, just as the Lord has commanded. Moses is telling them it's time to give. And the people are to demonstrate their real desire for God's presence by making a contribution towards the building of the tabernacle. And again, it's reiterated that Moses speaks to everyone and the command is coming from the Lord. And then lo and behold, what does he do? We have a command to give freely. The contribution is both voluntary and obligatory. You know, I remember times in the army when I was ordered to volunteer. We used to call it mandatory voluntary. It's mandatory that you volunteer. Well, here we have a command to give freely. It's free and it's commanded. And yet, almost all giving in both the Old and New Testament is that way. It's commanded and it's voluntary. God commands giving, but he doesn't want unwilling givers. There's an expectation, there's a command, but it's to be willingly given. Because giving is both a responsibility and a privilege, a duty and a delight. It's an index of the priorities of our heart. As the people of God, uh, they have said, Lord, please don't destroy us. They know that's what they deserve. It's hard to describe how big an idolatrous event the golden calf was. And they said, Lord, please don't leave us. Dwell with us. Be close to us. Draw near to us. Give us your presence. And God says, okay, let's build a tabernacle. Then he turns around and says, now that I've spared you, now that I've forgiven you, now that I've shown you my grace, I've promised to dwell in your midst. Show me you meant it when you said you wanted that. Give to the building of my tabernacle. You want my presence? Okay. Show me that you want my presence by willingly giving. And then what happens? This is amazing. Exodus 35, verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Everybody leaves. Moses is addressing them. God commands this. You should do it. You need to do it willingly. And they all go home. There's no on-the-spot coercion, okay, empty your pockets. Nothing like that. It says, this is what the Lord wants you to do, but he only wants those of you to do it if you're willing to do it. And so everybody leaves. Moses is left all alone. They go back to their tents. And the reason this is done is that way they have to come back on their own. They're not being summoned to come back. Everybody goes home and they have to think about it and pray about it. And if they're going to give, you know, that's going to be up to them as to when and where and how much and all that. No coercion. If they're going to give, they're going to have to come back and give on their own. And then starting verse 21, we're told, notice this first phrase, Exodus 35, 21, and they came. Everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for the holy garments. Now, of course, that could mean that only those whose hearts were stirred. But if you read the rest of the chapter, you can see Moses' emphasis is on this massive response of the people of God. All the people were stirred to give. All were moved in their heart to give. 
People from every aspect and walk of life were stirred in their hearts to give. In fact, we read later on, they have to tell them to stop because they gave too much. I have never heard that in my whole life in any church anywhere. But apparently it's possible because it happens in Exodus. And you will probably never hear it from me. Just letting you know. But it's a universal experience among the people of God. Men and women, people with gold or silver or bronze, people had skins, valuable materials, people with stones and precious stones and spices and oils and rulers and tribes and chieftains and, and women who spin and have skill in spinning. All these people contributed. We have an emphasis on the willingness of the giving. Notice again, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution. Verse 22, all who were of a willing heart. Verse 24, everyone who could make a contribution. Verse 25, and every skillful woman. Verse 26, all the women whose heart stirred them. Verse 27, and the leaders. The emphasis here is on the range and willingness of all the people, people from every walk of life, rich, poor, male, female, the leaders, specifically mentioned women who are skilled in spinning yarn. All people, everyone bringing different kinds of gifts are moved to contribute. And then we read Exodus 35, 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses, to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. The people willingly, freely give. And we're seeing something here, the attitude of people who love the Lord. All the people who long for the Lord's presence and are looking for his coming will be willing to give to his kingdom. And we're working to build too. I'm talking about the body called Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church and then the larger kingdom of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ of which we in the PCA are only a small part of. We're working to build the house of God, the people of God, the fellowship of the saints, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're building. Because what does the New Testament say? God dwells with us. We are the place of his dwelling. We are the place of his presence. And if you want to be in the presence of God, where do you meet with him? You meet him when his people gather in the household of faith. And it doesn't matter where that is. People gather in the fellowship of the saints, the uh, people of God. And it could be in a building without a roof in Uganda. It could be anywhere. But that's what we're building. We want people who are not a part of that assembly to be a part of that assembly. We want people who are already a part of that assembly to be focused on glorifying God and enjoying him forever and ever, here and hereafter. But the point is that all the people who long for the Lord's presence, who look for his coming, are willing to give to the building of his kingdom. And that makes us ask some questions ourselves, doesn't it? How willing am I? How generous am I? Are we in giving to the kingdom? And not just giving money. And not just giving of our material resources. But giving ourselves to the work of the kingdom. Giving ourselves to one another sacrificially. You remember how the Lord of the Rings ends? 
how Tolkien ends the series doesn't end with a big battle. It ends back in the Shire. And everybody's back home. That's how the Lord of the Rings ends. Yeah, I know they eventually go over to the White Havens, but it all really ends in the Shire. And a lot of people, even Peter Jackson, the guy who did all the movies, said, you know, I never understood that part. But you know, the Shire is the whole deal in the Lord of the Rings because it represents that life of peace and rest and wonder and love that's worth living and fighting for in the midst of all the other hard things in the world. That's what the hobbits want to get back to. They want to get back to the Shire. Well, here, it may look like Exodus 35 to 38 is anticlimactic, but it's not. This is what it's all about. All those grand adventures in Exodus lead up to this, the people of God worshiping God and experiencing his presence. What's the point? The point is that the people are generous in their giving, and the people are generous in their giving because they long for the Lord's presence. They're willing in their giving because they wanted to have the tabernacle so the Lord would dwell among them. All these people who long for the Lord's presence, who are looking for his coming, are generous in their giving uh, to the kingdom because they love him and they long for him and they're always saying, come Lord Jesus. When's the last time you prayed that prayer? We should be praying that prayer all the time. Come Lord Jesus. That's what they want more than anything else. And their giving reflects that. Giving what they value, giving what they do, giving what they have, it all reflects that they long for the Lord's presence and they're looking for his coming. And I think the relevance for that is pretty apparent. This passage could have been written for us today. The Lord has given us much. Does our giving to him reflect his giving to us? Do we long for the Lord's presence? Are we looking for his coming? Does it reflect a real desire on our part to be with him, to dwell with him, to glorify him, to enjoy his presence? Pray that it does. And if not, pray that he changes you. And pray that he changes us. And you should probably do that now. So take a moment to pray, and then I'll close. Pray with me. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Once again, open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Heavenly Father, we're amazed at the way you called on the children of Israel who had rebelled against you to be instruments in the building of your tabernacle. And we're even more amazed that idolatrous people like us have been given the responsibility of being builders of the church, building the household of faith, building the fellowship of the saints, building the assembly of grace, building the gathering of the people of God. Help us to love your church and to love your people and to serve your people and to build them up and to draw those who are not your people into the fellowship of those who are your people so that they might be people who worship and love and serve and trust in you. 
We pray that you would cause your word to dwell in us richly. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.